how would you define evil? What does the word evil mean to you? How does evil work? What are the sources of evil? What is the nature of evil? These are some of the questions that participants have here at UUCF have been investigating on the past uh, six weeks on Tuesday evenings in a course called Evil, a Liberal Religious Investigation. We had a few members of that course share the definitions and their writings that emerged out of that course at the early service, and I'm grateful to Nancy Pace and Bob Ladner for being here at the late service to share some of their reflections. These are important questions to ask historically because to ask um, for us to ask because historically one of the weaknesses of liberal religious traditions such as Unitarian Universalism has been a naive optimism. In rejecting the extreme pessimism of many orthodox religious traditions, beliefs such as original sin, um, the total depravity of human beings, the irredeemably corrupt nature of society and the world, in rejecting that, many of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears overestimated the perfectibility of human nature, the possibility of building utopian societies, and the inevitability of progress, onward and upward forever, as they said in the 19th century. So whereas many Orthodox religious traditions have overestimated evil as literally real, um, liberal religious traditions have underestimated evil as something that can can and will easily be overcome through human reason and ingenuity. But as the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote in the Gulag Archipelago, if only it were all so simple. If only there were simply evil people insidiously committing evil deeds and it were only necessary to separate them and and destroy them and the rest of us would just be left good. But, he writes, it turns out the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. During the life of any heart, this line keeps changing place. Sometimes it is squeezed one way by exuberant evil, and sometimes it shifts to allow enough space for good to flourish. One and the same human being is at various ages and various circumstances a totally different human being, at times close to being a devil, at times close to sainthood. From good to evil is one quaver, the proverb says, and correspondingly from evil to good. When I look into my own heart and am honest, I know this to be true. What do you see when you reflect and look inside yourself and reflect on your experiences of yourself, of other human beings, and of this world? Do you see pure good or pure evil, or do you see that dividing line shifting back and forth? When I try to define evil or any such heavily freighted word, I try to keep in mind that these are ultimately just words in our human language. They're imperfect tools for communication that have evolved over time for historically contingent reasons. As one of our Unitarian forebears quipped in the late 19th century, I spell my God with two O's and I spell my devil without a D. 
So instead of a literal metaphysical devil, early humanists removed that D and simply called some actions evil. And instead of a literal metaphysical God, they added an O and simply called some actions good. To explore more deeply, I'd like to invite you to consider uh, the social psychologist Stanley Milgram's infamous obedience experiments. Uh, And if you remember Milgram, Psych 101, vaguely starting to come back to you, has anyone seen the 2015 film The Experimenter? Okay, a few of you have. I, I highly recommend that. It's streaming on Netflix and other platforms, but it talks about, it's a biopic about Milgram's whole life. There's also a book about him called The Man Who Shocked the World that's quite excellent as well. So Stanley Milgram was the son of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. Both of his parents' uh, parents' families arrived in this country well before World War II, but nevertheless, his Jewish heritage did contribute to his interest in understanding what circumstances led to human beings being able to participate in genocide. Another influence on how Milgram designed his work was a previous study on independence and conformity by one of his mentors named Solomon Ash. Uh, Ash's most famous experiment invited volunteer test subjects to come into a room and they were asked to sit at a table and seven other participants were already there. So they were saying, you know, the other seven are already here, you're here, we're ready to begin. Now, allegedly, this study was about perceptual judgment. But here's the twist. Those initial seven people already sitting at the table, they were all working for Ash, and they were following a pre-planned script. So Ash would stand in front of all eight participants, and he would hold up a set of four vertical lines that were of varying lengths. Each person, in turn, then had to say aloud which of the three vertical lines matched the first line. There were 18 sets of four lines in total. The initial seven participants always went first, leaving the real test subject to go last. On the first few rounds, the experiment sort of seemed absurdly easy. And after choosing, after all eight participants choosing the right match the first few rounds, the seven participants began to purposefully choose an incorrect line on a predetermined 12 of the total 18 trials. And as person after person would choose the incorrect line, the real test subject was faced with a growing dilemma. What's going on here? Like, are we seeing the same lines? You know, uh, you know, should I trust my own perceptions or should I go with what everyone else has been saying? Because resisting peer pressure can be difficult when seven different adult human beings that are strangers to you have said confidently that an answer that clearly seems wrong to you is right. So, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, definitely line three this time. Yep, three. Oh, it's three, 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 three. And then all of a sudden it's your turn and you're like, oh, it's not three. You know, and you're like, do I say one? Do I say the right answer? Uh, So it turns out that subjects went along with the bogus majority's answers about a third of the time. Keep that result in mind. About a third of the time, people would rather conform to a majority that they're pretty sure is wrong rather than risk going out on a limb to support an unpopular position that they're pretty sure is actually correct, but if they're actually wrong, could lead them to feel ridiculed or embarrassed or whatever. Uh, Versus being punked, right? You're on candid camera. We just wanted to see if you'd be an idiot in front of us, right? 
So uh, Milgram's own obedience experiments were conducted starting in 1961 in New Haven, Connecticut. They were advertised in this case as a study of memory. So that's what people thought they were doing. You all know this, right? You're never actually doing what the psychologists tell you you're doing, right? Okay. So they were, uh, participants were paid $4.50 uh, and adjusted for inflation. That'd be about $36. So that's not bad. Come in and do a few minutes of work for $36. The money was paid at the beginning, and participants were assured you can keep the money no matter what happens. They didn't want that to be uh, any sort of coercion that people were continuing because they wanted to make sure they got paid. Citizens of New Haven who responded to this ad ranged from around 20 to 50 years old, and similar to Ash's study on independence and conformity, Milgram's obedience experiments were, um, the participants were led to believe that there were two subjects that were, you know, participating in this study, when in fact everyone else except for one person was part of the participant team. So both participants came into the room, they were asked to each draw a slip of paper, and they were set for this memory study. And they were said, one says teacher and one says learner, and whoever draws teacher will be the teacher, and whoever draws learner will be the learner. But it turns out they both said teacher, and the person who was the fake participant said, oh, well, mine says learner. So they, would, they just said that every time. The teacher was then led to a box that said shock generator. And it had a series, some of you are starting to remember this, uh, there were a series of switches that that went from 15 volts to 450 volts in 15-volt increments. There were additional labels that grouped every four switches in the progression that read from left to right. They read slight shock, moderate shock, strong shock, very strong shock, extreme intensity shock, danger, severe shock, and then the final two just said XXX over the top of them. The learner was taken to the next room and put behind a closed door, and the teacher was instructed to administer a series of memory tests through a microphone and speaker. Whenever the learner answered incorrectly, the teacher was told to flip the switch, administering the next tie-up set of 15 volts. The machine didn't actually shock the person in the next room, but the teacher didn't know that because this shock generator had a very realistic set of lights and meters and buzzing sounds that correlated to the increasing, allegedly increasing voltage. And the pre-planned script that the learner was following ensured a series of wrong answers. But the teacher was instructed, you have to continue administering the shocks, even as they heard from the next room these increasingly pitiful and painful um, pleas from the learner, some of which included, I have a heart condition, you know, things like, please stop, just stop doing this, I want to stop. The teacher was also given an initial shock of an actual 45 volts to give the person a point of comparison. Uh, keep in mind that 45 and 450, so the fi- they would know that what they were administering by the end was 10 times stronger than those 45 volts uh, they gave at the beginning. So disturbingly, 65% of the subjects continued to obey the experimenter to the end simply because they were commanded to do so. 65%. So I should also mention that the learner was not actually, again, not actually being shocked. And also they, every teacher experienced the same thing because the, the, volt, the different voltages cued a, pre, a pre-recorded thing to play. So the screen, the learner was actually just sitting back and chilling out. And when you flip the switch, it would play a pre-recorded set of screams and pleas for help. So everyone was experiencing the same thing. Uh, 
So many of the teachers questioned whether they should continue, but they were assured by the scientists in the white coat that it was vital to the experiment to continue. And when when that was done, a significant majority set aside their conscience and their better judgment and submitted to the instruction of the authority figure. Milgram's experiment has been repeated in the decades hence with various other, with, uh, by other scientists and shows similar results. So these studies consistently show with stunning clarity that ordinary individuals can be induced by an authority figure to act destructively even in the absence of physical coercion. And it didn't take evil or aberrant individuals to carry out actions that were immoral and inhumane. While you might think that, you know, if I'm confronted with a moral dilemma, I'm, I'm going to act like my conscience dictates. It turns out that in concrete situations um, containing powerful social pressures, our moral sense can be readily trampled. So prior to his obedience experiments, uh, Milgram wrote that he didn't think it was possible, even given the much larger population of the United States compared to Germany, to find um, what he called enough moral imbeciles to staff the, the death, to find the number of people needed to staff and administer the death camps in Germany during the Holocaust. After the obedience experiments, he wrote, I'm now beginning to think the full complement could be recruited in New Haven alone. A substantial portion of people do what they are told to do, he wrote, irrespective of the content of the act, without pains of conscience, so long as they perceive that the command comes from a legitimate authority. Then it's perceived, it's not on me, I was just doing what the scientists told me. The political theorist Hannah Arendt calls this phenomenon the banality of evil. In her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, in watching the trial of the Nazi leader Adolf Eichmann, she became convinced, really to her dismay, that similar to what um, Solzhenitsyn said in the Gulag Archipelago, that Eichmann wasn't this uniquely sadistic monster. She wishes that he were, because then we could just get rid of the uniquely sadistic monsters and then have a good world. She said, instead, it seems the truth is more disturbing. Eichmann was an uninspired bureaucrat who simply sat at his job and followed orders of those higher up. Relatedly, Nazi records have shown parallel to the psychological studies of conformity and obedience that when orders were given to begin large-scale executions, in some cases, 50% or so of soldiers would refuse to do so at first, but they often usually then allowed the other 50% to do it because they say, well, then it's on them. But over time, what was found is as that social modeling happened, upwards of of 90% would end up participating in these terrible and heinous acts. Now here's the more hopeful turning point. The opposite has also been shown historically and in studies to be the case. One dissenter can cause a cascade of rebellion against an unjust authority. But you need that crucial first person with the bravery to protest as well as the essential second and third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth people willing to step up in solidarity in order to create a potential domino effect. Otherwise, what's going to happen? They're just going to kill the 
the first person that dissented, but the more people that come forward, the harder it is. Indeed, Milgram ran a variation in which there were three teachers, two of whom were actors. When the fake teachers defied the experimenter, the scientist in the white coat, one at 150 volts, another at 220 volts, then 90% of the naive subjects followed their example and dropped out somewhere before 450 volts. Those people dropping out gave them the courage to listen to their conscience. No other variation Milgram conducted was as effective in undercutting the power of authority as someone modeling dissent. How many of you have seen the TED Talk titled How to Start a Movement? Some of you remember it's the uh, shirtless dancing guy one. So uh, you can Google shirtless dancing guy later. Well, Google TED Talk shirtless dancing guy. Otherwise, you may not find the right shirtless dancing guy. But uh, that's between you and Google. Uh, you and our Google over- overlords. So uh, what this does is it, the beginning of this TED Talk shows a video. It's a, you know, it's a summer day. They're on this grassy knoll, and there's a concert happening. And all of a sudden, from this crowd just sitting on the hill, they don't know each other, one random shirtless dancing guy gets up. And he's not dancing really well. He's just kind of flailing his arms and having a good time. And, but what you start to see is he does that for a while. He's by himself. People are kind of looking at him weird. But then all of a sudden, somebody joins him. And then another person joins them. And then all of a sudden, eight people join them. And then all of a sudden, like the, almost the whole crowd is up dancing within about three minutes. The whole process from the one guy dancing alone to the whole crowd being up takes about three minutes. So that first follower transforms the lone nut into a leader. The second follower transforms two lone nuts into a crowd. And a crowd is news that people start talking about and noticing. And you suddenly get momentum, these increasing numbers of people coming forward in twos and threes and fours and five, because as more and more people come forward, there's increasingly less risk of being ridiculed as, look at that random, you know, shirtless dancing guy. And then there's a tipping point where if you don't hurry, you're not going to be part of the in crowd that was up there dancing first. And if you wait too long, instead of making fun of shirtless dancing guy, you're the one being made fun of for being the square who's too, you know, won't sit down, who's sitting down instead of taking the risk of dancing. So now if there are more time, I'd love to give you more details about Milgram's experiments as well as many related findings, in particular um, Philip Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiments. If you don't know his work, go to prison ex- prison, it's either prison experiment or prisonexp.org, or there's a powerful book about his work called The Lucifer Effect that I also highly recommend. But just to give you a few brief highlights about the Stanford prison experiment, uh, average citizens in 1971 were recruited off the street of Palo Alto, California to be part of this two-week prison experiment. They were given a series of tests that showed that they were psychologically stable enough and, you know, within the normal um, range. But the experiment was canceled prematurely after only a few days instead of the intended two weeks because it became almost immediately dangerous and volatile and psychologically harmful. So divided at random into prisoners and guards, these average U.S. citizens, even knowing, you know, this is all an experiment, we're being paid to do this, we can stop at any point, they began to inhabit their roles in abusive and disturbing ways almost immediately so that the prisoners felt like prisoners. They didn't feel like they could leave even though they actually could. 
Uh, Zimbardo said the most essential lesson for him that has emerged from reflecting on this experiment, he's also been called to testify around the Abu Ghraib trial, so he's um, done a lot of thought about this over the years. It was the power of systems on influencing behavior, that it's not just about whether you want to choose to to dance and with shirtless um, dancing guy. It's that whole system, same with Abu Ghraib. Um, Zimbardo's essential metaphor is he says, too often we blame a few bad apples. It's just a few bad apples. Get rid of the few bad apples and we're fine. He says, no, almost always we have some pretty good apples that are put into a bad barrel and they spoil. It's really the barrel. It's the system that needs to change. Along these lines, one of the reasons I'm committed to our Unitarian Universalist movement and to progressive movements generally is that we come from a long line of heretics. And that word heretic, it comes from the Greek word heresis. It just means to choose. It means to choose for yourself instead of doing what someone does because you know, that's what they told me to do, and they're wearing the white coat. Or, you know, it's what we've always done. You know, it means to choose for yourself, to own that, to take responsibility. We come from a long line of heretics who can inspire us to challenge corrupt systems and unjust authorities. In 1553, our Unitarian forebear, Michael Servetus, was martyred. He was burned at the stake by John Calvin for questioning the doctrine of the Trinity and the necessity of infant baptism. But his memory continues to inspire others, both then and now, to question unreasonable belief systems. In 1863, not 1963, in 1863, our universalist forebear, Olympia Brown, became the first woman ordained with full denominational authority. She also, as a minister, worked for women's rights to vote from girlhood to 1920, when she cast her first ballot at age 85. In 1859, as part of the abolitionist movement against slavery in this country, if you look at the Secret Six who helped fund and supply John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, five were Unitarians, two were Unitarian ministers. During the Vietnam era, when Daniel Ellsberg was looking for someone to publish the Pentagon Papers so they could be made public, the only publisher willing to take the risk was our UU publishing house, Beacon Press. But to remind us that these decisions would seem so clearly the right decisions in retrospect, to remind us of how hard they are to make in person, I mean, in the present, and how lack of assurance of whether this is going to go okay, let me remind us that at the time, Beacon Press found itself in a two and a half year spiral of harassment, intimidation, near bankruptcy, and the possibility of criminal prosecution. When they published the Beacon, the Pentagon Papers, they almost immediately got a call from their bank saying, you need to send a representative now. FBI agents are here, and they're asking for the information on every, unit, on every person who's given a single dollar to Unitarian Universalism in the last few years. Sort of McCarthy-era style tactics. There are so many more examples I could give, but the lesson is that although there are individual acts of evil, we were, many of us were powerfully reminded by Brian Stevenson at the Weinberg this past Thursday, that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. There are individual acts of evil, but each of us is more 
than the worst thing we've ever done. As well as, for the most part, good and evil acts are strongly shaped by the institutions and the systems in which we find ourselves. I know for myself that being part of this congregation locally and being part of the Unitarian Universalism movement, Unitarian Universalist movement continentally and globally, that challenges me all the time to be better than I would be otherwise, to listen to my conscience more closely and to be willing and more likely to make that first move against injustice or to be willing to stand in solidarity with others who have made first acts of resistance or protest. As Dr. King said after studying the work of our UU forebear, Henry David Thoreau, I became convinced by Thoreau that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. So stand up, speak up when you see our first principle being violated, when you see the inherent worth and dignity of a human being being denied, like that transgender child that was kicked out of the Ted Cruz rally this past, you know, having that person's inherent worth and dignity questioned simply for wanting to use the bathroom. Stand up, speak up when your conscience is tugging at your heart and you know you need to say something, that you know you need to speak up. Stand up and speak up, and together we can continue building a better world of peace and liberty and justice, not just for some, but for all. So just a final thought as we prepare to go from this place that I didn't mention earlier that the one of the most moving parts to me of the story in the news post about the young transgender teen who was asked to leave the cruise rally was that that teen wasn't alone. The mother was there in solidarity, and that was moving as well. It's not easy to support your loved ones when they're different, but it can be essential. It can make all the difference. So as you go from this place, continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go from this place, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. And as we prepare to leave, a reminder that any of us always has the choice of the the dark side and the light side. Go in peace.